Welcome to the Plans and Provisions Podcast, your source for homesteading and preparedness information and inspiration. We're so glad you're here. We'll be talking with some incredible folks, sharing ideas, and learning what we can do to become more independent and resilient in these interesting times. Now here's your host, Jason White. Fermentation is all around us. It is used to some degree in a surprising number of common and not so common items of food and beverage all around the world. It is found in every culture and on every continent, and while it has served to nourish and sustain generations of different cultures around the globe, it is declining in popularity in proportion to the rise of commercialism and mass-produced food. My guest today has taken up the cause of advocating for and preserving the art of fermentation, all while bringing together a myriad of cultural practices to share with the world. His name is Sandor Katz, also known as Sandor Kraut. He is a fermentation revivalist and New York Times bestselling author. He has been called the Johnny Appleseed of fermentation and has achieved a sort of rock star status among the independent food movement. In our conversation, we discuss some of his experiences abroad as well as dive into some of the reasons that fermentation can be found in every culture around the world. We get into the elusive nature of the origins of fermentation and the many ways it has evolved into what it is today. We also discuss adding fermentation to the more standard preservation practices of canning, drying, and freezing. I hope you'll enjoy. Hey, Sandor, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Jason. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you. Um, I've been reading through your recent book, Fermentation Journeys, and it's uh, it's definitely a journey. There's some some really interesting, uh, really interesting practices that you highlight from around the world. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, fermentation is not a, you know, a unified set of techniques. I mean, it's an extremely, uh, um, you know, disparate range of practices that, you know, people in every part of the world, you know, figured out to suit their, you know, environmental conditions and the kinds of foods that are abundant there. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like there, there is some level of fermentation practice in nearly every culture on every continent. Um, You know, why is it that fermentation is so widespread? What have you found? Well, so I I mean, I would say that fermentation is, you know, perhaps universal. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I I have to, you know, hedge a little bit because I don't possess universal knowledge or encyclopedic knowledge. And um, but but what I can tell you is that I have not been able to come up with any counterexamples. Uh, You know, every time someone has suggested a culinary tradition that does not incorporate any kind of fermentation, I've been able to learn about some kind of fermentation that's uh, uh, been, you know, part of the culinary uh, uh, legacy in that part of the world. Um, You know, my thinking about why fermentation is practiced everywhere, you know, is the simple reality that the science of microbiology has illuminated that, you know, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms. And so there's a certain inevitability to microbial transformation of our food. And, you know, long before anyone knew of the specific existence of these organisms, um, you know, clever human beings, you know, observed under what conditions would food decompose into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would think to put in their mouths, you know, versus under what contrasting conditions does the food, you know, somehow, you know, be become improved, you know, whether it's producing alcohol, whether it's preserving food from now to eat later, whether it's making food more delicious, whether it's making food more easily digestible, whether it's removing some toxic compound from food, whether it's, you know, making food, you know, easier and faster to cook, you know, there's, there's an incredible, uh, you know, long list of practical benefits of fermentation, but, you know, you don't have to have a microscope or be a microbiologist to sort of observe the these benefits. And so, you know, people everywhere, you know, figured out through observation and trial and error, you know, how to use this invisible life force to, you know, improve food rather than, you know, have it just spontaneously degrade. Yeah, that's interesting. So obviously, like you said, you know, microbiology and that science has, has developed and kind of uncovered the magic that developed over 
you know, eons of, of, of history. Um, it seems like in a lot of ways, fermentation really started as a means of preservation for, for a lot of cultures, one element of fermentation anyway. Sure. I mean, you know, and particularly for people in temperate regions with limited growing seasons, you know, the, the you know, primary and most uh, important application of fermentation has been to preserve food. So, um, you know, we could think of, you know, cheese and yogurt and all the different forms of fermented milk as being strategies to preserve this extremely uh, uh, perishable food product. You know, we can look at, um, um, you know, hams and uh, salamis and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the vast array around the world of ways that people People use fermentation to preserve fish and meat as a, you know, as, as a means of preservation. We can look at, you know, sauerkraut and kimchi and pickles and olives as strategies to use fermentation to, you know, to preserve vegetables. Um, so, you know, so that's really important. But I mean, I would also just, you know, point out that the most widespread application of fermentation is not necessarily food preservation, but it's the production of alcohol. And, you know, people everywhere, um, you know, enjoy, um, um, you know, alcohol for, um, you know, sort of celebrations and, 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 and rituals and pleasure. And, um, you know, every carbohydrate you could imagine, people have developed techniques to turn them into uh, uh, alcohol. And so, sure, we could think of wine as a strategy for preserving grapes, but, you know, it's, 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 it's more than that. And, you know, beer is never a strategy for preserving barley. You know, the barley preserves much better in its mature, dry state. Um, so, um, um, you know, so there's alcohol. And then if we look at, um, um, you know, tropical regions of the world, you know, there's fresh food available all the time. So, you know, preservation is less, uh, you know, is less important in, in day-to-day life. Now, in, you know, in some places like Pacific Islands, you know, there there's a sense of like famine foods. So there's, you know, all kinds of traditions of, you know, pits of bread fruits that, that can ferment for years. And, 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 and these are sort of, you know, you know, a safeguard against famine times. Um, um, but, um, uh, you know, let's say cassava, which is, you know, this, this um, starchy tuber, which is, you know, incredibly important, about a billion people on the earth, that's their, you know, primary daily caloric intake is, is from cassava. But, um, you know, where the, the place where cassava is believed to have originated in the Amazon, and another place where it's extremely important in West Africa, cassava grows with really high levels of cyanide. And if people tried to eat unprocessed uh, cassava roots, they could literally kill them. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the processing techniques that people have developed to make cassava uh, uh, safe to eat involve fermentation. And the fermentation breaks down those toxic cyanide compounds into benign forms and, you know, renders the food safe to eat. So, you know, that has very little to do with preservation and more to do with, you know, sort of making a food more suitable for, for human consumption. So, yes, I mean, preservation is extremely important, but, you know, it's by no means the, you know, like the, 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 the sole benefit of um, uh, fermentation. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So when you talk about cassava as an example, you know, I wonder how, how in the world did they figure that out? Do you have any idea where that, that, that tradition took place? Was it an accident or is there any history behind that? Well, I mean, sure, there's history behind everything, but, you know, I I mean, it's all, you know, the history of fermentation is extremely elusive because it's also ancient. It, you know, it all predates recorded history. And by the time, you know, by, 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 by the time we have recorded history, you know, we have, um, um, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the earliest explorers who are, you know, visiting the Amazon, you know, documenting you know, what people are doing and have been doing, but nobody really knows, you know, how these things started. I mean, there's, there's actually incredible mythology around the origins of lots of different fermentation processes, but, you know, but it's mythology. I, I mean, you know, who, who, who knows how these things started? I mean, I, you know, in, in my imagination, a lot of these things originate with happy accidents, you know, people, people notice that, you know, that the smell of the food changes, 
um, 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 you know, when it when it sits in water. Um, um, and, you know, anytime you take a food and you just put it in water, you're going to get some sort of spontaneous microbial activity. Um, and, you know, the technique for fermenting cassava basically is people peel it, coarsely chop it, put it in water, three to five day fermentation. They discard the water, you know, rinse the pieces of cassava and then, you know, do whatever they're going to do with it. Um, um, and that that's enough to, to break down the cyanide compounds and make it safe to eat. Um, you know, who knows how people figured it out? I mean, I, I just tend to think that most of these things were, um, uh, you know, people's observations, uh, you know, and or trial and error. But, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that when I was, when I was um, uh, in South America a few years ago, you know, one of the most delicious foods that I tried that I wrote about in Fermentation Journeys is this uh, condiment called tukupi. And, and, and basically it's the, you know, in, uh, 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 you know, the, the group that makes the tukupi, like what they do with the cassava is they grate it and then they, they like wring it out to squeeze all the juice out and the, and the, the, the cyanide compounds are concentrated in the juice. And then, you know, they use the fiber, uh, uh, in, 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 in different kinds of preparations, but then they allow the juice to ferment. And then after the juice ferments, they cook it down, cook it down, um, cook maybe some other things into it. And then they make this like black, tarry, thick, sticky, delicious, uh, rich condiment. Um, um, that, that, that I had a chance to, to, to eat and I loved it. And my, you know, my host in Colombia who introduced me to it, he, he was calling it, uh, uh Amazon miso. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and it is something like that. Now I know miso is a mold, more of a mold culture with Koji, right? Well, I mean, miso like soy sauce actually, you know, involves a lot of different kinds of organisms. And this is the thing is most traditional ferments don't involve a singular organism, you know, because the idea of isolating singular organisms is very much a technological idea that, you know, sort of was first achieved in the very late 19th century and, you know, really only became sort of commercially applicable in the 20th century. Um, but all the traditional ferments involve broad groups of organisms, but miso and soy sauce in particular enjoy extremely broad groups. So koji, which you mentioned, is a Japanese name for um, a grain or bean or sometimes other things with this fungus called Aspergillus oryzae growing on it. Um, um, so it's, it's, it's a mold. And, um, you know, when you grow the mold on rice or barley, they get really sweet and aromatic. But, and, 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 and part of that process is all of these enzymes develop that can break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars, break down proteins into amino acids, break down fats. And so the koji is the sort of the first step of miso making. Um, um, but then it also involves yeasts and bacteria. So, you know, it's an extremely, um, um, you know, complex uh, uh, process involving a lot of different kinds of organisms. And when I say complex, I don't mean that it's so hard or difficult or challenging, you know, like that you would need a degree in microbiology or a laboratory to do it, but complex just in terms of, you know, the community of organisms that um, uh, performs the fermentation. So when I make miso, in addition to koji, which is a really essential element of it, I always take a scoop of mature miso and mix that in. What, you know, what in, in the fermentation literature is called backslopping. You take a little bit of an old batch into a new batch, and that's, that's what introduces the broader community of bacteria and yeast that are also important to the development of the flavor of the miso. I see. So when you when you talk about those, that broad range of, of organisms, um, I know a lot of folks are aware of the benefits of probiotics and there, there's a massive market in probiotic capsules and things like that. And they, on, you know, on the label, it'll say, you know, here's the list of all the different cultures that are in there. How does that compare to say, when I chop up some cabbage and salt it and leave it in a crock for a week or two, like what, what what's going on there and how how does that compare as far as the the range of of bacteria well i mean i i mean i i guess i should say that you know the the, the concept of probiotics is is actually you know quite a controversial uh, um uh um 
conversation debate right now. You know, there are some people who say that like, you know, only specific strains that have been proven to have a specific benefit to the host, whoever's eating it, um, um, you know, can legitimately be called a, a, a probiotic. Um, the World Health Organization takes a broader view and says that like, you know, well, okay, any organisms that, you know, that have a beneficial effect on the host, uh, you know, w- would be probiotic, whether, you know, wh- whether that's, that's been established through clinical trials or not. You know, I would say that, um, um, you know, most of the benefits that we are attributing to, um, um, you know, ingesting bacteria really have to do with biodiversity. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, a lot of it, you know, I hear, I hear all the time from people who um, uh, report improvements in their digestive processes when they start incorporating these bacteria-rich foods into their diet. There's a lot of documentation that's maybe harder for an individual to observe, but there's a lot of um, 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 uh, documentation of how increasing biodiversity in the gut can improve immune function, um, you know, just make you more resilient, um, um, you know, easier to sort of, you know, fight off potential illnesses and, um, you know, ma- ma- maintain robust health. Um, you know, then there's all this like very exciting new research looking at um, uh, uh, mental health. And, and, you know, it's been observed that um, um, some of the, some of our brain chemistry is regulated in ways we don't fully understand by bacteria in the gut. And there seems to be some benefit from eating bacteria rich uh, uh, foods. And, you know, I mean, my general observation would be that, that the greatest benefit of eating bacteria rich foods is increasing biodiversity. And so I would say, you know, rather than thinking like, oh, what is the best food to eat to increase biodiversity? Um, or what is the best probiotic capsule to take to increase biodiversity? Like the best strategy would be doing different things, you know, eating some yogurt, eating some sauerkraut, um, uh, drinking some naturally fermented sodas, um, um, you know, having some different fermented vegetables uh, um, made from a different group of vegetables, Um, um, you know, and and, I mean, sure, on top of that, I mean, why not take a a, a probiotic? Um, But but the thing about most probiotic capsules is, you know, they'll tell you like, oh, every capsule has, you know, a billion bacteria and, and, you know, on the label, they'll list, you know, one or two or three or four strains, but, you know, that kind of biodiversity pales in comparison to, you know, what you'll find in any kind of, you know, spontaneous wild fermentation. Now, wild fermentation is the, is the title of my first book about fermentation. And it's not a phrase that I made up, but what wild fermentation describes is fermentations based on the organisms that are on the food. Um, uh, um, and so, you, you know, because everything we eat is host to, you know, incredibly complex communities of organisms, wild fermentations just tend to be much more diverse than, um, you know, something, you know, which is either heated up or, or, or using chemical means to kill all the bacteria that are indigenous to the food and then introducing some specific organisms. Um, so, uh, um, you know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, probiotics can be great. And I would expect that, you know, in, you know, in the not too distant future, a lot of the, um, you know, medical breakthroughs that we'll be seeing are going to be really targeted probiotic therapies, where, um, uh, you know, investigators like, you know, find specific strains that, that, that have some very specific action that can be, you know, therapeutic for a person having a very specific kind of health problem. But I think, you know, for the time being, most of the probiotic therapies that are, that are available are very very, you know, broad and general, you know, they'll, 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 they'll help with overall immune function. They'll help with overall, um, uh, uh, digestion. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think for that sort of like general stimulation of, um, um, you know, biodiversity, I think, you know, really, you know, traditional fermented foods, uh, um, you know, are as good, uh, uh, or potentially better than, um, um, you know, most commercially available probiotics. That's interesting. So when, so when I do a, a sauerkraut with just cabbage, I do a green cabbage. Um, if I add carrots and I add some bok choy is because 
it, because I'm giving them different foods and there's different types of yeasts and, you know, bacteria that are on the different foods, I'm going to get different, different cultures within that product. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Like there's a lot of, you know, really like, I mean, every jar, you know, every batch of kraut from like, you know, even if you're talking just cabbage from a different field is going to have a different community of organisms. I mean, there will be broad similarities. There is, you know, um, you know, extremely good predictability that, you know, um, um, you know, uh, uh, botanists and microbiologists have, you know, uh, come to the conclusion that all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth are host to lactic acid bacteria, and they're the ones that we need. But not all lactic bacteria are the same, um, and there's, you know, just, you know, incredible variance among, you know, strains and even among sort of identified strains, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, genetic variance. And, you know, one of the most interesting facts about bacteria is that they're just, they're simply not genetically stable. And there's a lot of debate about whether the concept of species and strains even really is appropriate for talking about bacteria, because, the genetic material is free floating in the cell and they've got all these mechanisms by which, you know, they can exchange genetic information, release genetic information that's not relevant to their existence at a given moment, take in new genetic information from the environment and incorporate it. So, I mean, bacteria are incredible shapeshifters. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, biodiversity is so important to us, because when we eat bacteria rich foods, you know, it's, it, it's not so much that like those individuals individual bacteria are going to, you know, be able to take up residence in our bodies. Some of them may, but the vast majority of them will not because it's a highly competitive environment where every ecological niche is, is occupied, but it enriches the um, genetic material that's available to all of the bacteria that are in there. And it enriches the range of metabolic byproducts that are available to them, nutrients that are available to them. So, um, um, you, you know, the, the, the superpower of bacteria is their genetic flexibility. And so, you, you know, just, just having, you know, different foods from different vegetables in different fields is, is just going to sort of yield greater biodiversity than, you know, one single brand working with cabbages from one farm, um, um, you know, or any single vegetable or any single group of vegetables. So, you know, diversity in our diet turns out to feed biodiversity in our gut. Wow. That's, um, I've never heard any of that. That's really, really interesting. Um, so when you, you know, obviously your, your mission seems to be to preserve and restore the art and culture of fermentation. You're, you're doing a lot of great work, written some great books. Um, I know you go out and teach, you give workshops. What are, what are some of the most common fears and misconceptions you encounter about fermentation? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, for for people in our time who have, you know, grown up um, um, in the midst of what I call the war on bacteria and, you know, we've just been hearing all of our lives how, you know, how dangerous bacteria are, how important it is to avoid bacteria. Um, you know, we have all these tools we can use to kill bacteria. Um, and, you know, I would say over the last couple of decades, you know, we've been hearing more and more about how important bacteria are to our health and well-being. But, you know, for someone who's heard all their lives uh, until they started hearing that, how, how dangerous bacteria are, it can be confusing. And, you know, one of the things that got me interested in fermentation education is, you know, the first time I taught a sauerkraut making workshop, which was in 1998, um, uh, it was at a food Skillshare event uh, um, uh, at a um, family homestead near where I live in Tennessee. Um, but one of the students held up a jar of vegetables that we had just shredded and salted and everyone filled up a jar to bring home. 
And she just looked at the jar with, um, you know, this, this perplexed look on her face. And she said, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in this jar of vegetables and, you know, not some dangerous bacteria that might make me sick or even kill somebody. And so, you know, she was really just projecting, you know, all of the anxiety she'd ever been taught to have about bacteria, you know, onto the jar of shredded vegetables. And, um, and what I've learned since then is that that's very common. Um, you know, it's really hard for people to, you know, to trust that this process is safe, you know, even though people have been doing it for thousands of years, um, you know, and, you know, with the specific example of, of, of fermenting vegetables, um, you know, I've become friendly with a um, uh, a microbiologist who is employed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And, you know, it turns out that the USDA has has not found a single documented case in the United States or anywhere else they are sharing data with of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables. And so what this suggests is that the process of fermentation makes the vegetables safer than they are before you ferment them. Because, you know, we read every year about these outbreaks of, you know, this year it was like uh, uh, red onions. Uh, uh, one year it was spinach. One year it was lettuce. One year it was tomatoes. You know, clearly there is the possibility of incidental contamination of vegetables with bacteria that we would regard as pathogenic. But the thing is that once you ferment them, once you create the condition that is going to allow the lactic acid bacteria to flourish, even if there happened to be some cells of salmonella or E. coli or something else that we would associate with food poisoning, the lactic acid bacteria are always going to dominate. And as they acidify the food, they destroy the pathogenic bacteria. And this is one of the, you know, elegant and and, and, and um, um, uh, uh, convenient facts is that, you know, none of the organisms that make us sick can survive in a sufficiently acidic environment. So like for the food regulators, uh, you know, people I know who have businesses producing fermented vegetables, they, you know, what they do to satisfy their regulators is they test the pH of each batch. And it doesn't take too many days before the pH goes lower than 4.6, which is regarded the point at which, you know, nothing pathogenic uh, uh, could survive. Um, you know, for home fermentation, you don't need to do that. Like, you know, I mean, if you're worried about, about, you know, that your, your fermented vegetables might be dangerous, you know, what I like to say is like, you know, it'll be an unprecedented historical event and you'll get a lot of attention. Um, but it's just not going to happen. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for, um, um, you know, 30 years now. I've met people who've been doing it much, much longer. And, you know, it just it just doesn't happen. You know, there's things that could go wrong. You could get an ugly mold on the top. If you let that grow for a long time, it could make the whole batch really like soft and mushy. But the things that can go wrong are all going to be abundantly avail uh, abundantly visible and obvious. Um, um, you know, they're not going to be sort of, um, uh, you know, invisible, toxic uh, uh, surprises. You know, that's with fermenting vegetables. Um, you know, I would say that, um, I, I mean, I, I would say like, you know, fermenting, fermenting meat and fish, you know, takes a little bit more nuanced understanding. Fermenting vegetables is where I just suggest most people start because there's really just like no danger to it. Um, and all fermentation processes, even, even, the, even the fermentation of meat and fish are, are totally strategies for safety. But, you know, the, 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 the high protein substrates are just inherently a little bit more dangerous. And, you know, they can be more dangerous without fermentation. And, you know, and, and they can still be dangerous if you don't do the fermentation quite right. So, you know, with all fermentations, it's just a matter of understanding the environment you're trying to create. All fermentation practices, you know, really amount to subtle manipulations of environmental conditions to encourage the growth of certain organisms and simultaneously discourage the growth of other kinds of organisms. So, you know, my audience is kind of the homestead, homestead type, um, you know, in that community, you know, heavy emphasis is placed on canning, freezing, dehydrating as, as uh, preservation methods. 
Um, what can you say about the benefits of fermentation over those more conventional methods of preservation? Well, I mean, I mean, conventional. Um, okay. So, I, I mean, I don't think you have to choose one method of preservation over another. I mean, you know, you, you, you know, your larder will be richer for having, you know, more variety, but like, okay, let's, let's talk about freezing. You know, obviously, if you were doing the homesteading you're doing 100 years ago, you wouldn't have had a freezer. Um, you know, I mean, freezers really are, you know, a, a, a 20th century innovation. And, you know, freezers take electricity. And, um, you know, if you're on the electrical grid, then you know that periodically there are disruptions to the electrical grid. And, you know, whenever there's blackouts, you know, that people, the food in people's freezers goes bad. So, um um, you know, I mean, freezing is great, but it has it has that limitation. Um, canning, canning, you know, people think of it as an old timey method. You know, canning is a technology that's a little bit more than 200 years old. And, uh, you know, it was invented by a Frenchman named Nicolas Apert. And um, in France, they call it apertization because they remember the name of this person who invented the process. And I mean, canning is wonderful. But, um, um, you know, I would say that, you know, the great advantage of, you know, preserving vegetables through fermentation as contrasted to preserving vegetables through canning is, you know, canning involves the application of high heat. The particular nutrient that is most essential that we're trying to preserve in vegetables to get us through the winter when there, you know, are, are little or no fresh vegetables available um, is vitamin C. And vitamin C degrades under heat. So, you know, any food that's canned just intrinsically is going to have diminished vitamin C, whereas, you know, the fermentation is much more effective at maintaining the vitamin C. The fermentation also, you know, maintains the bacteria themselves and generates all of these, you know, other metabolic byproducts. So like, you know, fermented vegetables have these compounds called isothiocyanates that are regarded as anti-carcinogenic. So the food is, you know, enhanced by the fermentation. You know, we've been learning that the bacteria themselves can have so many benefits to us. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be fermentation versus canning like you know you can make you can make some fermented vegetables and then you can can some different vegetables and then you know you can have both the, the big advantage of canning over fermentation is that um, um you know the vegetables will be shelf stable for years um, um you know uh, fermented vegetables are a little bit more dynamic i mean i have definitely eaten fermented vegetables that were years old but they were kept in root cellars at earth temperature, um, you know, or, or in long-term refrigeration. Um, um, but so, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't have a root cellar that stays the earth temperature, then, you know, it, 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 you can't preserve it for as long, but in cool temperatures, you can certainly preserve it through the winter. And, and, you know, as a practical matter, that's all you need. Um, you know, by the next summer, you're going to have fresh vegetables. Um, um, you don't need to be sort of eating vegetables that have been preserved. So, you know, it's not either or. It can be both and. And I would say that, you know, sadly, the American approach to sauerkraut has been you ferment it and then you heat process it and can it. And I mean, sure, you can do that, but you're really, you know, destroying some of the greatest benefits of it. Um and, um, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think anything's wrong with cooking sauerkraut, but you don't want to cook all of it, you know, eat a little bit of it raw. And, and then, you know, if you want to make a, a Hungarian sauerkraut soup, which is incredibly delicious or sauerkraut pierogies or, um, a bigos, which is this like Polish, uh, sometimes called hunter stew where you marinate meat in uh, sauerkraut and then you, and then you sort of stew it all day in sauerkraut. Oh my God. So delicious. Delicious. I mean, you know, cook with it, heat process a little bit of it, but keep some of it raw so you can sort of enjoy those, you know, the, 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 the benefits of biodiversity from the, from the living bacteria, you know, some of these metabolic byproducts like the isothiocyanates and, and the vitamin C. Excellent. So Besides sauerkraut, which is obviously, I mean, I make sauerkraut, I make kombucha. That's kind of my main, my main uh, two right now. Um, certainly 
after reading your your recent book, I've got a lot of a lot of great ideas. Um, but for somebody in that homestead, you know, life, a gardener, farmer, um, you know, they've got meat, dairy, they've got eggs, they've got produce. Outside of you know the common sauerkraut, like what are what are some good kind of first steps to augment? their preservation techniques like you talked about what are what are some good options that people can get started with great well i mean first of all let me just say that you know i'm a homesteader also like i live off the grid i've got solar electricity um uh um, you know, that's how I got interested in this um, um, is, you know, the first year that I was gardening, you know, I was such a naive city kid. It never even occurred to me that all the cabbage in a garden would be ready at about the same time. Um, so the first year I was gardening, when I was faced with this rather obvious reality of agricultural production, you know, that's when I had the idea like, oh, I should learn how to make sauerkraut. I know that I like sauerkraut and I know that it has something to do with preserving vegetables. And, you know, I learned from the joy of cooking how to make sauerkraut. Um, and, um, you know, so first of all, let me just say like, you know, like if you have a garden, sauerkraut is not the only way to ferment vegetables. I mean, you know, I love to ferment whole cucumbers in the summertime, um, and make, um, um, uh, uh, sour pickles, um, um, you know, what, what sometimes people call kosher dills, um, um, you know, I ferment lots of vegetables. I ferment string beans. I ferment okra. I sometimes ferment green tomatoes, especially if I have a lot of them towards the end of the season. Um, uh, you know, and then, you know, like my new book is full of all different, you know, sauerkraut's not the only way to ferment vegetables. Like this is, this is pao tsai. This is a, a Chinese style of like, you know, spiced, uh, uh, vegetables. There's, you know, there's a, a lot of, you know, different ways you can approach fermented vegetables. You know, sauerkraut is the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. Um, milk, you know, any, you know, any of the homesteaders who I know who, who, you know, have a couple of goats or a couple of cows and they're, and they're milking animals for themselves, you know, I mean, the flow of milk is not even through the year, you know, after you, after you have, um, um, uh, 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 babies, you know, the flow of milk goes up and up and up. And there's just a point in the summertime when the people who I know who have animals, like just have more milk than they know what to do with. And so, you know, fermentation becomes, um, you know, an, an, an essential way to preserve milk, you know, whether you want to make yogurt out of it, whether you want to make cheese. And, you know, the thing about cheese is, you know, cheese isn't just fermenting milk, it's fermenting milk, but also removing a lot of the watery part of milk. So you're, you're making it thicker and, 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 you know, the, the denser, the denser and less water there is, the longer you can preserve it. And so like really hard cheese, like cheddar cheese or Parmesan style cheese, you know, those, those, those actually can age for years. So, you know, depending on like how much milk you have and, and, and want to preserve, there's a lot of different things you could do to ferment the milk to make products that will, you know, have different horizons for how long they can be um, um, preserved. Meat. I mean, there's very little tradition in the world of fermenting chickens, although you can, because a chicken is is like a self-contained meal for a couple of people. Um, um, you know, if, if, if you put all your resources into raising a couple of pigs and then you slaughter them, well, you have hundreds of pounds of meat. And, um, you know, that's why so much more of the you know, the, the, the traditions of preservation through fermentation, you know, involve pigs as opposed to, let's say, poultry, um, just, just because there's a practical imperative to it. But, um, you know, all of the, all, you know, all of the, you know, cured meats involve different degrees of fermentation. I mean, salamis, it's absolutely essential. I mean, I mean, you know, in, 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 in contemporary salami production, usually starter cultures are added because it's so important that the meat acidify uh, rapidly in the earliest stage of, of, of the process. Traditionally, no starter cultures were, were introduced, but it was through the, you know, garlic or other kinds of, you know, fresh herbs introduced the lactic acid bacteria that would acidify the, 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 the salami as the first step of the, of, of the process. Um, but, but even, you know, hams and, and, you know, all forms of, 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 of cured meat involve microbial transformations that happen over time. Um, you know, um, um, 
I mean, I think that those are the sort of major, you know, areas of preservation. I mean, you know, bread, I mean, I, I mean, I certainly work with a sourdough, but, you know, nobody has ever made bread in order to preserve wheat because, you know, if you, you know, wheat, when it's dry, that that's, you know, in its mature state, as long as you can keep it dry, like that's how it's going to preserve the best and any kind of like fermentation, like the reason why wheat preserves, I mean, there's, you know, there, there's rich bacteria and yeast community on the wheat, just as there is on a cabbage or a carrot. The difference is that because the wheat is dried, those organisms are deprived of the water that they need in order to access the nutrients of the um, grain. So, you know, if, 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 if we were starved of, of, of water, we would just die. But, but, you know, bacteria and yeast can go into a sort of dormancy. And then the first step of every fermentation of grains or of beans is introducing water. And that, you know, reawakens these dormant organisms and enables them to, um, um, you know, start fermenting. Um, so, uh, um, you know, grains and beans are really never fermented to preserve them. But these foods can be challenging to digest. And, um, uh, you know, the fermentation has to do with digestibility, nutrient bioavailability in, in, the, in, the, in terms of bread, lightness. You know, if, if our bread didn't ferment, it would be dense like a brick. You know, what, what makes it lighter and pleasant to eat is the lifting that's usually achieved through fermentation. I mean, of course, you know, there's like, you know, baking soda breads and, um, you know, there's other ways to achieve that. But, but um, you know, this gets back to what I was saying, that there are a lot of varied uh, benefits to fermentation and it's not always about preservation. Hey, folks, just wanted to take a quick break from the conversation I hope you're enjoying this discussion as much as I did. And if you're interested in learning more about fermentation from Sandor Katz, I invite you to click the link in my show notes that will take you over to the Chelsea Green Publishing website where you can purchase some of his amazing books on fermentation. Uh, as mentioned in the interview, I recently read his most recent book, Fermentation Journeys, and really enjoyed it. Um, I've also recently ordered his New York Times bestselling book, The Art of Fermentation, and I cannot wait until it comes in. Since my conversation with Sandor, I have slowly expanded my collection of ferments on my kitchen counter as I'm experimenting with different concepts and ideas. Uh, it's just been a lot of fun. My kids are really enjoying the different things that I'm making, surprisingly, which I'm loving that. And uh, yeah, it's just, I've, I'm, I'm kind of hooked. So looking forward to the recipes coming from that book, um, The Art of Fermentation. And in my opinion, if you were going to buy just one of his books, that would probably be the one to get. So as I mentioned, you can find a link in the show notes that will take you to where you can buy his books, or you can find the Chelsea Green Publishing link on my resources page at plansandprovisions.com resources. If you do make a purchase through those links, I will receive a small commission at no cost to you. That way you're supporting the show here and supporting Sandor's work and supporting your journey to independence and resiliency. All right, let's get back to the conversation with Sandor Katz. So as far as bread goes, you know, with all the supply issues that we're facing right now, and I know that yeast has gone in and out of availability, are there some, and I know I've read a little bit in the book and I've taken so much in, I can't remember it all, but are there some pretty common things that folks can do to use something that's already fermenting in their house to serve as a starter for, for dough? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I mean, you know, if you're if you're a beer maker or a winemaker, I mean, certainly you can take your, you know, your your fermenting alcohol and use just a little bit of that, you know, a quarter cup of that or something like in place of yeast. If it's really vigorously bubbling, you could just skim the the foam off the top of that and 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 uh, and 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 start it bubbling. Um, I'm just finishing making making sake. So this um, 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 liquid that, that, that's draining here is sake, but the solid residue of sake making is um, uh, basically decomposed rice. And, um, you know, uh, 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 this in, in Japanese cuisine, this would be called kazu. And um, I mean, you can make beautiful bread just by putting this decomposed rice, you know, in, in you know, with your wheat and water and salt. Um, um, and use that to rise bread. So yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of, I mean, yeast is everywhere. 
I mean, all fruit has yeast, um, all wheat has yeast, all rye has yeast. So, I mean, when you said that there was a yeast shortage, that, that just makes me chuckle because, you know, yeast is everywhere. And I mean, just for me as someone who's been interested in fermentation for, for all these decades, you know, I have sort of made, uh, um, you know, I, I mean, nothing is wrong with using packaged yeast. I mean, I totally recognize, you know, how convenient that can be. But, you know, I've just made all kinds of um, alcoholic beverages and all kinds of breads for decades, and I just have not used a packet of yeast. And um, and you really don't need them. And I've met a few people who are calling themselves things like yeast bioprospectors. And, you know, they'll go to They'll go off, they'll go to a farm or a homestead and, you know, they'll just like, you know, take some flowers or, you know, take some little berries and, you know, they're, they're, all these things have yeast on them and then they'll make small batches of beer and then just try to find, you know, unique regional uh, uh, strains of yeast that have really good flavor that, that they can, you know, sort of start um, um, selling to local breweries. Um, um, but you know, the source of yeast is just things that are growing on your homestead and, 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 you know, you can, you know, you can, you can make use of them. And, you know, usually I make, when, when I make alcoholic beverages, I'm usually, um, uh, using some kind of fruit that's abundant. I mean, blackberries, blueberries, elderberries, uh, persimmons. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm just mixing up a sugar water solution or sometimes a honey water solution and then just putting all this fruit in it. And then, you know, if, if, if you put a bunch of fruit in, it, it, it's, it just happens so quickly. Like, you know, it, it just starts to bubble by the next day and the bubbling builds in vigor. And, um, um, you know, ye yeast is everywhere. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, we can, we, we can work with, with, with the, the yeast that's everywhere. And then one other thing that I have in my book, which is really interesting to me as a process is there's this Appalachian tradition of, uh, what's called salt rising bread that doesn't involve yeast at all. It involves this completely different organism, Clostridium perfingens. Um, and um, uh, so, I mean, it's sort of interesting to see that, you know, you know, I mean, without knowing microbiology, just people, you know, developed techniques that um, uh, encourage the growth of very different kinds of kind of organism. And I mean, I love the smell and the flavor of the salt rising bread because, you know, it, it's, it's almost got this cheesy flavor to it because of this different bacteria that's, that's rising the bread. Wow. So there's yeast everywhere. Um, I, I imagine when we, you talked about the, kind of the, the fluid nature of the, the genetics of bacteria. Um, I know yeast is not a bacteria exactly, but I would imagine that you're going to get a wide variety of results from the different wild yeast that you use from time to time. So say if I use a batch of blackberries from this spot from this, to that spot, am I going to get a different blackberry wine from those two locations or will it be pretty similar? I mean, it could be different. I mean, it yeah. definitely could be different. No, I mean, that's, that's what, you know, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, the, the finest examples of every kind of fermentation, like the finest wines in the world are natural wines where, you know, commercial yeasts were not added, where they were relying on the yeast of the grapes. The finest cheeses of the world are raw milk cheeses where, you know, no laboratory derived pure cultures are added. And, and, you know, there's a 100% reliance on organisms that are in the milk and to some degree organisms in the aging environment. Um, you know, the, the, the finest salamis in the world are made without adding starter cultures, just based on what is spontaneously part of it. The finest breads in the world are sourdough breads, you know, made from, you know, uh, um, a community of organisms that sort of somebody has cultivated that came off of grains themselves. But, you know, in each of these realms, like there's greater, there's greater, um, um, you know, variation in results. So you might have the finest ones coming out of that, but also, you know, you might have results that, you know, don't have quite the flavor you're expecting. And I think that the, 
the well, one of the reasons why starter cultures became so widespread, especially in mass production, is because you know the number one factor in mass production is consistency of results. So, um, you know, so there's trade-offs and everything. I mean, I, I mean, I would say nothing is wrong with using um, laboratory-derived pure cultures. Nothing's wrong with using a packet of yeast. Nothing's wrong with making cheese, you know, based on, on organisms that you buy through the internet. Um, you know, but, you know, it's a, especially from a, like a homesteading perspective and, and, you know, just thinking about like, okay, well, what if, you know, the internet and our supply chains and everything really fell apart, you could still do all of these things. You know, you would just have to work with, you know, the, the natural variation of wild fermentation and especially in terms of alcohol fermentation, like one of the, um, one of the qualities that yeast is selected for is high tolerance to alcohol. So generally you can make a stronger alcoholic beverage, you know, if you use uh, strains of yeast that have been selected for their high alcohol tolerance. And sometimes if you're working with, with wild yeast, you, you know, you might find that the alcohol level maxes out at a certain point and then it kills off the yeast. So you might not be able to achieve you know, as high of an alcohol content um, um, with the natural yeast. But so, you know, there, 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 there's greater variation, but, um, you know, that's what people have always worked with. And, um, you know, that's just a reality of living in the biological world that we live in. And, you know, if you have a garden, you're dealing with, you know, the, the variation in temperature and rainfall. Like you don't know, you don't always have like the most ideal conditions, but, you know, you work with the conditions that you have. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm planning on uh germinating some corn and uh making some chicha. Is it chicha de jora? Is that what it's called? Yeah, chicha de jora. So jora is jora, the Spanish yeah. name for malt. So, you know, like you know, we make we make beer out of malted barley and what that means is simply germination. It's uh, you know, when 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 the germination begins, um, the seed goes through all these enzymatic changes and, 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 and some of the enzymes that develop um, um, break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars. And that those are what yeast can access to make alcohol. So um, uh, chicha de hora is basically like a chicha, which is a South American name for, you know, beverages frequently derived from corn, but sometimes derived from from other ingredients. But but chicha de hora means that the that the grains have been germinated uh, uh malted before the, the 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 chicha is made yeah i'm excited to try that i i've got all kinds of plans after reading this book so it's uh it's definitely a good read i highly recommend it um well i know i know you're busy um for the sake of time we should probably wrap it up but i wanted to maybe see if you could share maybe a quick highlight from the book or from your travels that you think uh, the audience would find intriguing. Um, well, sure. Um, um, you know, so, so I mean, I, I want to just really emphasize that I, you know, I started learning about fermentation for entirely practical reasons because, you know, I moved from New York city where I was born and, and grew up to rural Tennessee um, um, to a, like an off the grid community. And I've been living off the grid ever since, um, you know, which doesn't mean without electricity. I mean, I definitely have solar electricity. I have a lot of modern conveniences, but you know, it's always, it's always, it's always limited. Um, and, um, you know, fermentation is just an eminently practical, um, 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 you know, un undertaking. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've had the good fortune to be able to travel to quite a few different places and, you know, fermentation is really practiced everywhere. Um, but a lot of the variations have to do with historical conditions. So for instance, you know, when I, when I visited Japan, my host took me to this uh, uh, town in a mountain valley. It was called uh, Kiso. We drove past Mount Fuji to get there. And it was this in this remote valley in the mountains where, you know, now there's highways and, and um, you know, they, they can get whatever they want transported there. But historically, they had a hard time accessing salt. And so, you know, without being able to access salt, they developed techniques 
for fermenting vegetables without salt. Like salt is not absolutely essential for fermenting vegetables. And, you know, I've heard about other places in Nepal, there's traditions of fermenting vegetables without salt. Um, but, you know, it, it's always a manifestation of what the specific local conditions are. Um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, wherever it is that your listeners are, are tuning in from, uh, you know, the process of fermentation is, is largely about like, you know, paying attention to your environment and, you know, and, 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 and what's abundant and, you know, what the, what the climate is like and, um, you know, and, 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 and working with that. And, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of these traditions are really the ultimate manifestations of place, but of course, you know, now that we've figured out ways to manipulate temperature and manipulate humidity, people, you know, people can often make things that developed in one particular environment in another uh, uh, kind of environment, um, you know, by by kind of simulating the conditions of, 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 of those places. So we have a lot more, um, you know, a lot more possibilities in any place you can, you know, let's say, um, um uh, you know, you're on a farm in California and you want to like make a camembert style cheese. Well, you know, camembert style cheese emerged in camembert France in a particular cave system. And if you're in California, you're not going to have access to, to those caves. But, you know, with a little bit of research, you can find out, you know, what the what kind of temperature and humidity conditions it takes to age a cheese like camembert and what kind of specific organisms you need. And there's all kinds of, you know, Internet resources where you can, um, you know, access uh, uh, specific uh, um, um, cultures to, to introduce to to these things. So we actually have, you know, just incredible um, uh, uh, range of, of, of possibilities right now. Um, and it's fun to play. Like, I love to experiment, um, um, you know, with just different variations, different seasonings. Um, you know, something that I've been loving right now is um, I've been making seasonings um, that are that are similar to this Japanese soybean ferment called natto. And natto is a ferment of whole soybeans. And sometimes people who haven't grown up around natto find natto pretty much in, unapproachable because the, the, the beans become coated with a slimy coating. And the sliminess is challenging to a lot of people. And it's, it's an example of an alkaline ferment that has a little smell of ammonia to it. Um, so um, a lot of people are kind of put off by the flavor of natto, although I will say, uh, although I didn't love it the first time I tried it, I love natto now. I crave natto. I make natto frequently. But I've also been dehydrating natto and grinding it up with um, roasted uh, uh, sesame seeds and salt and sometimes other seasonings and making like a, like a dry um, um, uh, 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 condiment seasoning with it. Um, and I will say that like nobody I have shared this with has disliked it. I mean, I think it's got a very, very appealing, uh, uh, flavor. And so this is something that just by, by, by playing around and, you know, I, I, I saw how natto was used in some different cultural contexts. So in China and in Myanmar, um, um, I encountered natto like foods. And then I also learned that in West Africa, there's very, uh, uh, um, uh, widespread seasonings that, that, aren't soybeans, but other, you know, indigenous uh, 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 beans that are grown with the same bacteria as natto. But in those other contexts, it's always used dry as a seasoning. So that just made me try this. And, and, and I think it's made it much more um, um, accessible. So, you know, there's, there's just endless possibilities. I want to just tell people about my website, wildfermentation.com and there's information about my books there's information about workshops that I'm teaching some of them online some of them you know here in Tennessee where I live some of them in different places um, and also information about um, uh, you know links to all kinds of um, fermentation related resources that are out there on the world wide web and and you know there's really there's more information uh, um, available now than there than there ever has been um, so check out my website, wildfermentation.com. And in addition to my most recent book um, um, that you've been looking through, Jason, which is called Fermentation Journeys, um, uh, my first book about fermentation, which, uh, you know, I think is a very accessible um, introduction to fermentation is called Wild Fermentation. 
And then um, uh, like my, my big book about fermentation is called The Art of Fermentation. And, um, um, uh, you know, some people think it's too much information, but if you want to go down the rabbit hole, you know, that, that'll take you there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And a word of caution, everybody. Um, one of these books, it's going to send you on a journey. I, I, am, I have so many different plans and I'm already sourcing different strange ingredients that I've never heard of before. And uh, yeah, my wife's looking at me like I'm crazy, but it's, it's definitely exciting. And I, I highly recommend uh, any of his books. Definitely his most recent has been uh, really good to me. Um, yeah, Sandor, thanks so much. This has been a really great conversation. I've learned a ton. I know the audience will as well. And um, I hope they go and check you out online as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. You have a good day. All right. You as well. Take care. All right, folks, there you go. My conversation with Sandor Katz. I hope that you enjoyed it and found some practical things to take with you. And I also hope that some of you will begin experimenting with fermentation in your home kitchen. I know I talk a lot about homesteading on this podcast, but it is my belief that the homestead mindset and lifestyle begins in the kitchen. So even if you don't have a huge garden, you can certainly start experimenting with different ferments. And again, I recommend his books to get you started on the fermentation journey. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. This is Jason signing out. And until next time, reminding you to do something today to improve your tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Plans and Provisions podcast. If you would like to stay up to date with everything happening around the homestead, head on over to the website at plansandprovisions.com.